We have all been given the fire. Let us burn our way into the world. Let it light our dreams. It will take us beautiful and grace-filled through the future. The ones our grandmothers and grandfathers dreamed for us as they journeyed, as they carried us inside them in the time before ours. Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Chukma, chin chukma tahatak, sohoschifoa, jared impachachahatate, chikashasaya, taloa ikbisaya, hashlaka asayopa, chukmashki, yakoke. Hi everyone, my name is Jared Impachachaha Tate. Um, I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation here in Oklahoma, and I am a professional classical composer. Jared Impachachaha Tate is dedicated to the development of American Indian classical composition. He has recently worked as a guest artist for the San Francisco Symphony Currents program, Thunder Song, American Indian Musical Cultures, and was recently guest composer for the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Balcony Bar program, Home with Ethel and Friends, featuring his commissioned work, Pisachi, Reveal, for String Quartet. His commissioned works have been performed all over North America, including the National Symphony, Dallas and Detroit Symphonies, the Minnesota Orchestra, Buffalo Philharmonic, Winnipeg Symphony, South Dakota Symphony, and many more. Jared Tate has held the composer-in-residency for Music Alive, a national residency program of the League of American Orchestras and New Music USA, and brings music instruction and inspiration to the next generation through his work with the Chickasaw Summer Arts Academy and has taught composition to American Indian high school students in Minneapolis, the Hopi, Navajo, and Lumi reservations, and to Native students in Toronto. Jared has some amazing recordings available on the Grammy Award-winning label Azica Records including Iholba, The Vision, for solo flute, orchestra, and chorus, and Tracing Mississippi, a concerto for flute and orchestra. He earned his music and composition degrees from Northwestern University and the Cleveland Institute of Music, and also performed on keyboard for the Broadway tours of Les Miserables and Miss Saigon. Jared, it's so awesome to have you on One Symphony today. I just wanted to start by asking you about the amazing lineage of musicians and artists in your family. Can you talk about growing up in that atmosphere and were you encouraged to go into music? Yeah, yes, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. How much fun. I, I just, I love talking to folks. Um, 
I'm a, I'm a very, very fortunate and blessed man. I'm, I'm really grateful for the background that I came from. Um, first, my, my father, Charles, uh, is Chickasaw Indian from Oklahoma. Dad, uh, professionally, um, graduated law school. So dad's a lawyer, a tribal judge, special district judge. And more importantly, dad is author to our current Chickasaw Constitution. Um, every tribe in the United States has a constitution that is concurrent with it, with the United States Constitution. And so we have dual citizenship. And so, um, but dad is, is author to the constitution that was ratified in 1987, and that's what we live under today. So he's a very important historic figure. But that, dad is also an incredibly trained classical pianist and baritone. And so I grew up with my Chickasaw father playing and singing classical repertoire in the house on a very regular basis. And he gig, he still performs to this day. Dad is 81, and he still cantors for his church, and he still does performances. And actually, I just did a voiceover for one of my gigs with him because he's got a fabulous baritone voice. And um, so anyway, so that's, that's dad. And um, I, I started piano with him. And um, when I was eight years old, I asked to start taking lessons. And three months in after taking lessons, I had announced to my parents that I was to be a concert pianist. I was in. I was totally in. And how old were you? Well, I was eight at the time. So I, I started kind of late compared to what like historically a lot of pianists do. But when, when, I, when I got the bug, I got the bug. And so, you know, I went to undergraduate school at Northwestern in Chicago as a piano performance major. And I started my uh, mass, uh, graduate degree at the Cleveland Institute of Music and Piano. And that's when I began to compose. And that was for my mother. And so my, my mom, uh, Patricia, uh, was Manx Irish from Lincoln, Nebraska. And mom was a professional choreographer and dancer. And so my parents met in the theater. And so I, I call myself a theater brat. I completely grew up saturated in theater. And I'm talking like all types of theater, like straight plays, uh, traditional musicals, modern musical. Of course, uh, from a choreographer, I grew up with all kinds of modern dance, classical ballet. But mom also studied ethnic dance from around the world, and she was an, a, an expert flamenco dancer and belly dancer. And so I just grew up with an. And of course, I say all that because along with that comes this incredible arsenal of diverse music from all of those things in theater and dance. And so because mom was, you know, setting Firebird and Petrushka and Rite of Spring, you know, to her students, I was growing up with the finest symphonic scores ever composed in history. I ran rehearsals for her all the time. I ran the sound. And so I was constantly listening to Stravinsky, like orchestrations. They were just happening all the time. My favorite piece when I was a kid, when I was 12, was the Prokofiev Second Piano Concerto because the orchestrations are unbelievable in that work. So... Again, I was just, I was involved with all kinds of vocal music and theater, and I just happened to know a lot. And you know, one thing I'm really, really glad about was the, the incredible exposure to American dance that I, I got from mom. So uh, real heroes of mine were early modern pioneers of modern American dance. So like Ruth St. Dennis, Isadora Duncan, Martha Graham. Ted Sean, and then of course you get into Agnes DeMille, and then you got like you know people like uh, Jerome Robbins and Alvin Ailey, uh, Bob Fosse. I mean these types of choreographers that came out of all these all these American traditions were, and of course I mean I watched you know Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and Frank Sinatra dancing like crazy. All this choreography that I grew up with with all these American dancers had an incredible effect on me, and in particular. The fact that they were pioneers, number one, but they were entrepreneurs. I mean, I couldn't feel more American in the arts. It's not, it wouldn't be possible. You know, it's, I, I just grew up with so much of that, that just that culture and that mindset in American fine arts. And I'll tell you, American Indians picked up on that in spades. I mean, our artistic output in all the genres is quite phenomenal and very inspired and very fueled 
by American artists as well. So all the modern American art had a tremendously positive impact on Indian country and all the visual and literature and film, choreography, and now composition. Composition is a little late, but composition is always later than the other arts, um, in fact. But but American Indians were, have been given this incredible base of modern American artists as well from the last century. I'm talking like from the turn of the century, from you know, like the early 1900s on. It's been quite an explosion, really, if, over the last century and a half almost, you know, of art. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that I have in my wheel house and I'm just really really fortunate that that I was exposed to all of that. You mentioned that by the time the United States became a country, Chickasaws had been traveling to Europe like for the previous 300 years and assimilating culture. Can you talk about that blend of American, European and Chickasaw or other American Indian blending? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, the entire woodland area of the United States, you know, basically east of the Mississippi, is really a demographic uh, that's very unique to like the, the Western, like you, know, you cross the Mississippi and then you get into very, very different American Indian cultures of the Plains and then the Great Basin and then the Californias and the, the Upper West Coast, that kind of thing. So, but the reason I say that is because the Mississippi was kind of like this dividing line of history. All of that was being settled way before America was a country. And so, and when I say settled, I mean it. We had, we, we were immigrated into from the, the Scotch and Irish um, like crazy. And they became members of our communities, spoke the language and completely assimilated our cultures. And in fact, by the time America became a country, we had leaders in, in the Chickasaw Nation that were full-blood Scots. They were leaders. And so, you know, they, they were just part of the community because they assimilated into our community. So it was very much an immigration type of a thing. And of course, it doesn't mean there was there was a conflict. There was all kinds of conflict all over the eastern woodlands. But that was just, we are one example of the many different experiences that American Indian tribes had. And of course, as a consequence, we took the boats back with them to Europe because it was going on all the, it very quickly became, you know, commerce and, and uh, you know, fluid across the Atlantic Ocean. It really didn't take that long to get back and forth, really, once they got it. And so we ended up going out, even out to the Middle East. And so you see these famous pictures of Sequoia, the Cherokee linguist, and he's got a turban on. Well, that's not that's not Aboriginal to our cultures. That's from the Middle East. So we adapted. And it's really interesting because when you look at culture, like world history, look at their clothes because fashion is immediately traded on every possible level, whether it's like domestic fashion, military fashion, business fashion. I mean, it's in, instantly traded, especially military. You're constantly trading your gorgets or armbands or jackets. Like, you know, Indians wore military jackets that they would acquire from other officers that they gained respect from. And it became kind of a stereotype in some of the Western movies of the past, you know, was that you'd see a native wearing like this, you know, general's, you know, jacket or something like that. That was real. I mean, we constantly traded fashion. And so Obviously, that's just, you know, one of the things. And so um, religion, food, cultural constructions, um, government, all kinds of things were being exchanged uh, well before the United States became established. So and of course, you know, we were in touch with the French and the Spanish and the British. And and then, of course, when we go overseas, we were exposed to other things. And we came back and shared things. And so there was all that was going on for quite some time.
talked about your influences being kind of the contemporary American and, and even French, like Stravinsky, you know, Russian, Copeland, and also uh, Bartok, and especially Loak Shapola, your newest opera. Can you talk about just those influences and, uh, you know, on some of your kind of folk music inspired pieces? Yes, I, I would say that I'm very influenced by composers who were very plugged into their ethnicity and national identity. And that includes people like, you know, Sam Barber. I mean, you, you want to talk about an American composer. I mean, he was a, I was just thinking about him the other day because, you know, Chu Sang-Go choreographed his his uh, piano concerto um, and Barishnikov started that. And that was an, an, a really, another piece of choreography, a ballet that I was exposed to. His American identity was really, really clear in his writing. And I mean, he had a tremendous impact on his colleagues, like, you know, like, Copeland and Bernstein. He was right in that wheelhouse of all that stuff. He had a very ethnic identity of being an American and it came out really, really strongly. I liked that a lot. But the older composers like the Russian composers and French and Hungarian, well, I mean, Franz Liszt was way on the sleeve with his Hungarian dances on piano. I mean, I have criticism because some of it sounds like circus music. But the thing is, his whole intention was critical to Bartok's development because he was Bartok's hero. And Bartok's first piano work sounded exactly like Liszt. And then what happened was Bartok took advantage of the technology of his time and took that wax roll recorder and preserved the music of his own people. I mean, he became not just a, a, a historically important composer, but he became an ethnomusicologist of his own people, preserving his own folk music very intentionally. It was amazing what was going on with him, it all wrapped up into one. That process of his was very inspiring to me as an American Indian composer because I transcribe American Indian tunes and these are the first time these are being written down. And I'm very aware of this. I mean, we do have the, the wax roll recorders of, you know, Francis Densmore and, and Speck, you know, these people, Curtis, that went around and recording those. And so we've got a lot of those and now I'm able to transcribe those and that's very inspired by Bartok's process. And of course, I do that and I become like a, a music nerd. I will create like, you know, inversion and retro great inversion and, and chromaticize and augment and diminish intervals like Bach did in his own thematic material. So I do all of that very academic stuff that, that that's you know me being a composer, you know, uh, along with pairing the ethos of how I feel about being an American Indian. And so this historic process of composition, I'm very inspired by many, many composers. And then I love hearing like Tchaikovsky and him being so Russian in, after, you know, being an academically trained classical composer. And then his heart is expressing his pure Russian feelings. I love that. I think it's fantastic. And all these people did that you know, in droves. It was incredible. And so I'm very inspired by all of that. incorporate not only music from your culture, Chickasaw culture, but but Hopi, Pueblo, like all over the Americas. Can you maybe expand on the source of, you know, where you go to when you get these elk dances or buffalo dances? Like, like where does this music 
sit? Well, I mean, I, I hear a lot of this because I've got friends all over Indian country. And so that's one thing. But also that we have an enormous amount of music available on, on old cassettes and CDs. And, and I will, I, I have, honestly, it's I, I'm, a, I'm a modern person in the year 2021. And so there's multiple resources um, at my uh, available to me. Mostly I will receive like tapes or recordings from colleagues because I'm looking for specific types of things. And so that's, so I'll, I'll receive that. But we have the technology to record those on our iPhones and send them to each other, which is really nice. So like on the Standing Bear piece, um, his stand, the, his old honor song, you know, Brent, my buddy Brent just recorded it for me and sent it to me on text. And he was like, here's the honor. And then that became the last movement of the Ponca Indian cantata was that honor song. That's how I got to know it, you know. And so because I could, I didn't have time to travel to Ponca City and find, I mean, but Brent just happened to know it. And he lives in Edmond, which is just five miles away, but it was just a lot easier for him to record it and just send it to me on a text. Do you see what I mean? And so it's like, we're all modern people. And so American Indians are using technology to exchange things with each other all the time. I mean, when we're at powwows, everybody's recording each other at powwows and stomp dances and sharing songs and relearning that. So we, it, it is part of our reality too, that we're constantly culturally exchanging with each other within Indian country. I'm just giving that as a, it's, uh, to me, it's very exciting because we have the capability of doing that. Anyway, so that's like kind of like a, a, an example. There's a multitude of ways in which I will seek out and select and also when I'm working with other tribes, you know, I'm, I make sure that, that they're very approved, you know, that, that people are, understand what I'm doing. I'm very on the sleeve and very open and very communicative about what I would like to do with my ideas. And I talk it out with folks like a lot before I decide on it. And I just make sure that I'm feeling that everybody's okay with what's going on. And, you know, of course, I mean, I am not Ponca. I'm not Hopi. They are my cousin tribes and I have a real kinship with other American Indians, but I treat them with a lot of respect, you know, the same as they ask other people to do. So, but, you know, with our, with more Muscogean culture, you know, Chickasaw culture, um, you know, I, I feel a little more free because it's my culture and, and, uh, and my, you know, my tribe is very, very proud of the work that I do, which I'm very fortunate about. And I work with other tribal members and we just jam because we're all modern tribal artists as well so we're just in our modern vibe you know with each other of doing all this modern visual dance film and music i mean I, there's members of my, we have so many chickasaw artists it's unbelievable and so we're, we're constantly you know talking texting instagramming all kinds of stuff between each other so you know indian country art is very very dynamic we're very plugged into our past and we are also very, very modern. And so all that activity is, con it's just like this kaleidoscope of, of beautifulness. It's great, you know, what's going on. So I'm just plugged into all that. And I, you can tell I get very excited. I'm, I'm really, really happy that I live in a time in which there's so much colorful, you know, uh, I guess, motion and, and momentum that happens within our tribal communities. It's really, really fun. I really enjoy what I'm doing. You mentioned you get together and just jam. Can you talk about your compositional process in that regards? Do you do a lot of improvisation with other musicians in a live setting? I'll be clear. What I mean by jams, I mean culturally jam. It's like we talk, yeah, okay. we talk a lot. We communicate a lot. I'm a classical guy, so I'm a, I'm a little bit square. I'm not a good <laughs> jazz player, that kind of thing. I don't, I mean, well, like, okay, I, well, I'll say this. I do play for modern dance class perfectly fine because it's just me playing kind of Jared modern music and multimeters, and that's really pretty easy to do, or not easy, but I mean, it's like, it's just, I feel natural doing that, but I don't get together with groups and jam. It's not like that, you know, so, so I'm not, I'm not quite as, I don't have as, uh, 
as much confidence as I would like to do something like that. <laughs> but I, I mean, like more like we culturally jam and we're, you know, within Indian country, we are just blissfully cultural nerds. We love talking about our culture and talking with each other about it because it's dynamic and breathing and evolving. And so again, we're plugged into the past. And so when everybody comes up with a new like visual concept based on past petroglyphs or you know something that somebody did five years ago that that that's constantly evolving and happening and it's these our conversations with each other are just so much fun i mean we really have a really good time with all that that's what i mean so we culturally jam all the time it's great a little bit of your compositional process for Loak Chopala, The Fire and Light, which is a truly phenomenal and exciting opera that really utilizes Chickasaw identity through modern classical music and theater. You collaborated on that with Linda Hogan and many other Chickasaw artists. Can you kind of share how you pieced the story together and then, of course, your compositional process for uh, an undertaking like that? 
Absolutely. I, I do want to be clear. This is not an actual opera. I'm actually composing my opera, my Chickasaw opera right now that's premiering in Massachusetts um, in March. Um, but this is, it's, this is, um, it has operatic elements to it. So we have like, th there's three classical singers that are involved on a very operatic level. So there's opera moments, but there's ballet moments. There's cultural moments with orchestra, like, like traditional culture. So they, there's a lot of Basically, this is a big theatric collage. So basically, you have eight scenes that represent eight different aspects of Chickasaw history and culture. And so the best way for me to compare that, to be totally honest, is Riverdance. Remember, I'm, I'm half Irish, and I grew up with a choreographer. And so when Riverdance came out, man, I was just completely thrilled. That piece, to me, is brilliant. I love it. And I've had the pleasure of being able to talk to the producers when they were on the road and, and get you know backstage and just be around them a little bit. But but the thing is, I remember after, after experiencing all that, I thought to myself, I would love to do an American Indian version of that because Riverdance is just that. It is... It's several scenes, isolated scenes that represent different aspects of Irish history and culture. It's brilliant. And in a very modern lens. I mean, Bill Whelan completely modernizes the traditional dances. And of course, the choreography changes. I mean, they, they're opening their arms much more. You know, there's all kinds of things that happen choreographically that was more modern and yet steeped in the tradition. I mean, all kinds of things. And so um, that was a very inspiring thing. I, I received a, a contact from the American Composers Forum asking me to create a new work with my tribe as part of their Continental Harmony project. I would, had just been thinking about that. I just met with the Riverdance people just, just a, a year before that. And I was like, I know exactly what I want to do. So I contacted Governor Anatubby and I said, well, I'd like to pair with the tribe. He said, you know, green light, let's go. And so I just started working with our Division of Arts and Humanities, which was brand new and just brought in a really good brand new project for that division. And so I just started to brainstorm about a theatric arc. Again, I grew up with this. So here I've got all these great ballets as these arcs. I've got a mom who choreographed all the time. And so I've got this sense of architecture, of theatric architecture. And I just started to really apply all the things that I had learned so much, you know, from my parents. Anyway, so I just came up with this, you know, architecture for it. And so then I decided I wanted to have the libretto based on poetry of Linda Hogan, Linda Hogan is a very celebrated Chickasaw author and poet. She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and she's an absolute legend in our tribe, and her poetry is gorgeous. It's very lyrical, very easy to write symphonic and theatric music to her poetry. So she had just completed her own poem entitled Fire and Light, and it was kind of a summary of Chickasaws. I mean, it was perfect. It just, the stars aligned. And so that became the skeleton of the entire work. And so we, when you hear Richard Ray Whitman at the very beginning, that's her poetry in the very beginning of her poem, Fire and Light. And then the very end is the very end. And it's in between the whole way through. Well, then we commissioned her to write even more for the different scenes. So all the clams, that was brand new. The shell shaker, that was brand new. The removal was brand new. So all this stuff, was, all these major scenes were brand new that she wrote for the production. And so I just, you know, I, I asked her, I, I said, I'm doing this. Can you do this? And she would do that. And then I would, and then I would get the poetry and then I'd write the music. And so it was like, it was a very fluid collaborative process. But then also Margaret Wheeler came into the play and so did Dustin Mater. Dustin is a graphic artist of our tribe. And so his imagery and then her costume renderings and, uh, she also designed the stage. All this was happening at the same time. And so I would ask, I told her what I was thinking of. They would create something. We'd bounce back and forth. And so it became a real production team. It really, really was. It was perfect, honestly. And that's what, again, I grew up with that. I love production teams in theater. I love the fact that you've got pillars of expertise 
all working together that they create this roof over themselves and they're all really, really critical to the process. And that's what this experience was like. So you have these kind of massive projects where you're bringing in all these other artists and you also have, for example, a piece like Pisachi, which is composed for the string quartet Ethel's Documerica, and it incorporates Hopi elk dances in Pueblo and Hopi buffalo dances. Can you talk about how you discover and decide on which melodies to incorporate into a piece like that under the guise of the Documerica project? And can you also talk about working with the various visual artists on this project, including uh, Heloa Tate, your son's artwork? It's my understanding that that was incorporated into the project as well. Yes, Hiloha. That's his name is Hiloha. His, his name means thunder in the Chickasaw language. I, I appreciate that shout out. That's really really nice. Well, yes, th- this process was great. I mean, I've I've been to um, fortunately I've been to Hopi ceremonies and and I taught Hopi composition students and so I was able to have a much more personal contact with the music. I mean, Hopi music is phenomenal and it's very complicated. I mean, when these kids do ceremonies, they are practicing hardcore for a long time to get ready. And so, I mean, you know, it's, it's like there's there are some traditional musics in this country that are pretty simple and some are very, very complicated. I got to tell you, Hopi music is very, very complex. So anyway, so I, I was very inspired by that in terms of some of the movements like making them super, really complex, multimetered and this kind of thing. But but then I would just listen and just, you know, just take inventory. Um, you know, I asked my friends, you know, what, what are good songs to listen to? And I was I was very directed about what they what were their favorites of their own, you know, traditional music. And I would just listen and just pick something that resonated with me, honestly. Now, the reason I was doing that is because Ethel, for that part of the Documerica, they were focusing on photographs of the Southwest. So I chose to pick music that was from my cousins from the Southwest in honor of them. I wanted it to be focused on their culture. So that was the drive for that. And so then I just started listening to music and honestly just became inspired and then started transcribing and started, you know, messing around and coming up with different expressions. And then what I do is I just daydream and I just start to think about my own feelings and my feelings of my friends, you know, uh, and, and the nature. And all. I, do, I do all that, just very romantic thinking, very romantic feeling and, and just kind of rhapsodic thinking. And so I decided to come up with a piece that was in six epitomes, like kind of six movements and just because I felt like it. And that was just like that part of art that's really unexplainable. It's just very impulsive. And so we recorded that. Later on, the Met asked to do a, a, a performance of that and they wanted art paired with it. Well, so the art came later. And and honestly, I mean, look, I, I'm just in my zone with all these people. And so it was very easy to find art that paired because I'm kind of on the same wavelength, you know, with a lot of my colleagues and is more fun really to be like, oh yeah, Josh's swan is great. And, you know, Dustin's, this guy is great. And got to have Brent's bringing up the sun. In fact, that's the that painting in the background right there in my office. That's the original one? Wow, that's amazing. So yeah, it's it was my first piece of art that I purchased, in fact. And so, but he's got a stomp dancer that's bringing up the sun. And so there, you know, but see, he honestly, my, my friends in the tribe, I feel like we have the same feelings a lot. And a lot of their art resonates with me and that's how I'm composing already. So I, I already feel a, a real serious kinship. And with my, uh, my own, own son's visual art, I feel the same and his, his just matched perfectly. And he has this, this brilliant thing he did when he was four that I just thought was fantastic. And so I just put that in there. And so, you know, we had four Chickasaw artists. And uh, so I, I, I created that and proposed it to, um, to the Met and they accepted that artwork. And so I'm really, really grateful that they did that.
kind of keeping it in the family, you have a piece called Hiloha Akchamali, uh, which is which is blue thunder, which is based on your son and his favorite color. Um, can you talk about why you chose the clarinet as the protagonist in that? Oh, well, that was because that was the commission. Oh, okay. That's another like non-romantic, you know, just kind of practical part. It's like, you know, it's like, well, why did you write this flute concerto? Well, as a flutist, that asked me to write a flute concerto. It's like, and that that's very common in composition land. It's like, you know, all kinds of musicians and artists. Like, you know, like if you're commissioned for a mural... And the topic is this. Well, that's the topic that you follow. And then, of course, you pull in all your inspirational pieces. So for some reason, I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, the clarinet. Well, first of all, the clarinet is unbelievably expressive and facile. And so is the piano. And between the two, I have so much latitude to be expressive. And, you know, here at the time when I composed that, Hiloha was just barely five. And, you know, of course, now he's just about to turn eight and his energy keeps increasing. But I mean, this time of a kid's life is so active and so energetic. And he was just very inspirational to all the music that I was writing because this energy is just incredible. He still is. And, and, and now he's starting to think like, you know, more and he's expressing his feelings more. And so now that's kind of giving, making me more introspective in another way, a new way, because my son is doing it. So he just really has a lot of impact on my musicianship. And that piece was just straight up Hiloha, just everywhere on this, on that work. And Liz, the pianist, uh, her son is just a little younger than mine. And so she was resonating well with that whole playful a- aspect of it. And so she was having a really good time with all that. So we were all, again, we we're all really vibing a whole bunch on, on that topic of kids. <laughs> Thank you. 
Speaking of the concerto for flute and orchestra, this is Tracing Mississippi. I, I love this concerto. Can you talk about the concept and how you incorporated basically Chickasaw rhythms and the Choctaw uh, hymn? worth of the soul into this uh, concerto. Absolutely. Okay. Well, the piece was very inspired by trips that I took with my grandmother back to the homeland. You know, so we were we were removed uh, from the Mississippi area in the 1830s to Oklahoma, but before that, I mean, again, like I said, we were living there with European contact, we, we left houses and buildings and everything. We had land allotments at the time, and so we were selling off those parcels of land in preparation to move. And the reason I say that is because I know exactly where my ancestors lived, like the addresses of where they lived before 1800. I mean, that that's where, that was literally, that was a thing. And so my grandmother and I um, took uh, pilgrimages back to see the old land and to just, I mean, just be around it. So she, she just, you know, uh, in, uh, basically educated me on our homelands. And whereabouts in Mississippi is that? We were talking about northern Mississippi, uh, southern, and where it intersects with northern Alabama and Tennessee. Um, the Cherokees were just right across the Tennessee River, and um, then the Choctaws were just south of us. Choctaws and Chickasaws are the same people. We're just dialects of the same language. Hmm. And so that's why the, Ch the Choctaw hymns are so, so important to Chickasaws, is we all sing out of the same hymnal. It's the same language. But it was officially translated in the, Chickas in the Choctaw language when it was created. So that's why... It, I, I use those words interchangeably with the music. But, I, you know, on our trip back, you know, when we were driving, I told grandmother, I said, you know, there's going to be, I'm going to have a symphonic music, uh, symphonic work out of this. And so when my friend Christine Davis, she was the principal, she is the principal flutist of the Buffalo Philharmonic and a colleague of mine from the Cleveland Institute of Music, she asked me to write a flute concerto. And I just, I just pulled out all the stops and I was like, it was perfect because the flute is so iconic to Indian country and I had a full orchestra and I had a really, really good orchestra and I just laid it down. I mean, I just was like, all right, I'm going to base this all on a Garfish dance song. Every measure you can pick apart theoretically. I made sure I was just like, so this was my Bartok brain just on fire. I was just, the pistons were just all going like crazy. And and so I put in the chalk on him, but also there was a Comanche piece that a friend of mine had written. I, I was putting in very personal elements that that was that I wanted, I just wanted to do. And so I just wrote this flute concerto that was based on that. And my grandmother came to the premiere in Buffalo. Oh, wow. And yeah. uh, I was able to realize that dream. I mean, again, my gratitude to life is like the fact that I was able to do that for her at, based on those trips was really, really significant. And uh, she got to enjoy it. And then my parents came to the recording session in San Francisco and they got to just told so my dad was there which was just phenomenal I mean you know it, this was all really great serendipity that happened so but that piece is based on my experiences and the the title Tracing Mississippi is based in this Mississippi we're from the Mississippi area but there was a trade route from from New Orleans that, that shot straight across the Choctaw and Chickasaw and Cherokee nations up into the Appalachians and that's how you get up to like Washington, D.C. area, that kind of thing, up into the Smoky Mountains. And so it was a very, very serious trade route. It was called the Natchez Trace. And so um, that's, so, and we drove that entire thing across Mississippi when we were there as part of our just you know, exploration of the land. And so I called it Tracing Mississippi, like tracing my roots back home. I was thinking like painting, almost like repainting myself, almost like reconstituting myself in a new painting. And a lot of American Indians have that experience of, rediscovering what that means to be an American Indian. And it's a constant process. I'm like, you know, identity is a constantly evolving process for every human on the planet. That is a fact. 
I happen to be an American Indian, so my experience is focused on being an American Indian, and that's what I was feeling, was my identity being molded and shaped and growing with my grandmother. going from the large to the small, uh, we were talking about starting with fire and light, and now to Ashta, uh, which is four, from four strings around the world. Can you talk about how you approached uh, writing for the solo violin? Yes, absolutely. That was commissioned by Irina Mirasanu, and she was uh, she's a soloist, a, a very successful solo violinist here in the country, and she worked. Uh, she lives in Maryland. In fact, we are now working on a violin concerto for her right now, and I'm really thrilled because she's She's amazing, and we're just we lock in artistically very well. And so, anyway, she was creating her album of solo compositions by people from multiple ethnicities, and it was called Four Strings Around the World because the violin has four strings, and she was commissioning works from different ethnicities from around the world. I was part of her inclusion, and I'm really grateful for that. So that so the word um, Oshta is four in Chickasaw, and I just called it four, just as kind of like there's a good name. And so, um, and there was yet another Choctaw hymn that I chose to pick and, and harmonize and use as the centerpiece. It's in the middle of all that. And so then everything around it is all based on, again, you know, melodic materials from it. And I, I just decided to make it very rhapsodic and where she's singing a, a, a singing a G from, you know, her voice as she's playing the very beginning of the piece. And now it's expanded to where she has the audience singing the G drone while she starts the intro. And then the audience comes back at the very end. I love that. It's like, that's like a really great example of like how cool it is to work with other soloists who feel free to do artistic things and are thinking theatrically. Well, when you involve the audience and you give them a drone to sing, well, I mean, it changes, it changes everything. And it, may, and it just gets everybody into the same performance space. So, so she, that, that, that's just a brilliant evolution that happened with that. And so, um, you know, I was just inspired to write it like that. I just picked that hymn. It's a, it's a hymn I think is beautiful. I love harmonizing our, our hymns.
there's a, an aspect of American Indian culture that's not you know popular, not, not well known, meaning it's not in, in the media as much or readily available to um, other Americans. It's uh, native hymns. By and large, American Indian country is is Christian, and we have a lot of influences from different churches over the over the decades. And we have Bibles in our own languages. We have church services in our own languages. We call it Indian Church. And um, we have an enormous repertoire of hymns from mo multiple tribes across the country in our language that are our own compositions. Some of them are, are like straight up Protestant style. Some of them are like really traditional style. And then some of them are hybrid. There's a lot of gray air. There's like a lot of influences and mixes. Our hymns uh, from the Choctaws and Chickasaws were, there's a whole repertoire from you know, about 200 years ago, 150 years ago. There's some people who are still creating them now. And a lot of those were actually composed on the during the removal in the 1830s when we were walking over. We sang those hymns and people composed new hymns at the time um, as you know, just part of a, a musical coping mechanism. So that's a part of repertoire that I really dearly love. They're beautiful. And when they're sung beautifully, it's just, they're just... I, I'm, I'm speechless. It's I, They're just gorgeous. So I love transcribing and orchestrating our hymns. And so that was one, one of the pieces that I featured, a very specific hymn from the Choctaw Hymnal. That's amazing. I wonder if you have any kind of like brief recordings. Yeah. Oh, YouTube. Yeah. Just type in like American Indian hymns, Creek, especially Choctaw and Creek are the two words that would be keywords that would be really, really good. Okay. But they're all over the internet. I mean, like on websites where people like different churches have just loaded up their recordings of their hymns. I mean, they're everywhere. It's, you could literally just Google our, our American Indian hymns and find. And then also, they're sold on Amazon. I mean, it's like, the, I remember just a, a few years back, well, the Kiowa hymns, there's like a couple of volumes of Kiowa hymns. They're just very, very expansive. There's there was a Comanche, young Comanche gal that, that did these hymns that were just beautiful about 10 years ago. And she came out with a CD. I remember, I don't have that CD for some reason, but the, but I'm just aware of that. And I, I remember hearing it. Um, it was on some, some of our local um, American Indian radio stations. I remember Keeley played some of that in South Dakota. Um, and so they're around. I mean, it's like we're all aware of them and they're around like that. But you can, you can literally find homemade recordings and um, printed recordings on Amazon. Uh, Indian House... Recordings is I don't want to say a label. Well, they are a label, um, and they and they have an enormous repertoire of traditional and old and revitalized recordings from all over American Indian country. Indian house recordings. I have tons of stomp band dance music from them that was recorded in the 50s and 60s by a lot of Creeks and Choctaws. It's just fabulous. You know the Medford collections in Louisiana. There's a lot of those things for, for Choctaw singers that were still in Louisiana and recorded a whole bunch of old traditional songs. There's a lot of that stuff that people can find all over the web. New Mexico, the New Mexico archives has an enormous amount of archives that they did. In 2012, they had their centennial for New Mexico, and they did a lot of archive preservations of American Indian music that Lewis Ballard included. I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off on tangents, but there's an enormous amount of research that people can do online, honestly. Don't be shy. Get on YouTube. You'll find an enormous amount of stuff just and start picking around, and you, it'll take you to all kinds of different resources.
beginning of the pandemic to assist musicians and ensembles, you made all of your music free to perform through 2022. This is an incredible gesture. Can you talk about what the response has been? <laughs> it's been very positive. You know, I'll tell you, when the pandemic hit, it came down in three days. I remember those thir- that Thursday, Friday, and Saturday that it came down here in Oklahoma. Of course, with the, with the performing arts, everything shut down. And so all of us were sitting at our desks going, um, okay, what do I do? And there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of panicked feelings. And I just thought to myself, all right, I'm... <laughs> I can't, I, I'm not going to let myself have anxiety over this. I, this is just, you know. So I was looking at invoices pending from orchestras and ensembles, you know, uh, about, and these things were being canceled. And, and you know, I was, you know, going to collect and I was trying to write emails and I'd lean forward onto, the, onto my laptop and start an email and I'd just stop and I'd just be like, you know, I can't do this. They're looking for the same $5 bills I'm looking for. You know, this is not going to help anybody. And I had a lot of conversations with my friends around uh, chamber music groups and, and orchestras. And I, I had the privilege of talking to some of the librarians at different orchestras and their issues of rentals. I'm already aware of rental issues as it is. It's, it's an on, ongoing issue with, with composers. And so for the first thing I did was I was like, you know, I can't do this. And I just, I just contacted everybody. I, I said, look, you don't owe me anything. Keep the music right now. Let's see if we can just simply record it. We'll talk about payment later if and when you've got it and probably reduced. I mean, I was already, I was just like, let's be practical, Jared. You know, and the most important thing is that we've all got to live. I mean, I mean, what I mean is like, we've all got to be alive in music. And so I can't just collect all my scores and go home. That would have been really counterproductive to stay alive in music, you know? So I was like, here, just hold on to it. Please program it when you can and just let me know. And, you know, so, um, and then I just was talking to some more folks and I just realized that any rental at all was just insane to ask for. And people were immediately doing the online. I mean, people were were just, I mean, in overdrive problem solving. And the whole online presence, that happened in a week. People were creating online concerts. It was fast. And I was like, you know, nobody, but no, without money. It was like, everybody was just like, okay, I got this much left. I'm going to put it into this. I'm going to go, you know, and that's what I was doing. I looked at my bank account. How much do you have to live on? You know, what can you do? And I just was like, okay, I'm going to solve one problem a day. And I'm going to figure this out. I, you know, performances do mean royalties from BMI. So that was like, okay, that's something I can, I can lean on in my portfolio, right? I can take away all the pressure from everybody else here and then lean on this and it will at least be something, right? And so I thought, okay, well, that's a start. And so then I just, that's when I contacted everybody. It was like, here, please, you need content. I know you're facing rental issues, and nobody's got it, take it, go, please play some music. If you like it, I mean, I just, I had no idea what, you know, if anybody was going to be interested or not, but fortunately it, it really took hold and people were very grateful. I mean, I, I guess, you know, anyway, just, I was, I was moved by how they were moved and that was, that was really, really neat. And, and I just was like, you know, and if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it for real. I knew this pandemic was going for a couple of years. I could tell. This was not going to go away for a while. And so I was like, through 2022, just do it. And I mean, I'm just, I, I have five requests to fill today. Just, and I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. So again, I have a part of my portfolio that allows me to keep the lights on because of that. And so that's great. So I was able to take the pressure off of other people's finances and bank it into a, a, you know, a system that I have in, have in place with royalties with BMI. And that's, I mean, I'll tell you, man, there you go. I was just able to problem solve. But see, that was part of that, like, okay, breathe, Jared, problem solve. One problem a day. Do you ever see The Martian? 
Was that with Jack Nicholson a long time? No, ago? no, <laughs> that was Matt Damon. <laughs> that's, that's Mars Attacks. Mar- oh, The Martian. Yeah, with the potatoes. Yeah, I know that one. Know. Yeah, that's with the potatoes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was his whole thing. He was stuck on Mars for two years. That was two years, man. And he was like one problem at a time. He's like, you take the first problem, you solve it, and you go to the next one. I tell you, I was so inspired. I loved his that whole one day at a time. You know, just one problem at a time. And so that's what I did. Is I was just like, you know, I, I just felt it, and I'm really glad I did, and I committed myself. To two solid years. And I mean, I don't have to. I could Now people are getting back on board and everything like that. But you know what? It feels really good to be able to just be like, no, it's still valid through 2022. I mean, that's almost a year and a half still. Well, on behalf of some ensembles that are benefiting from your amazing music and you're, you know, just, just putting it out there like that, I, I just wanted to thank you for your generosity. Oh, sure. You you have some upcoming pieces, Shell Shaker, Hatak, Hiloa, Forest Dwellers, the Concerto for Trombone and Ghost of the White Deer. Are, are those, as far as you know, in the works? And are there any you can kind of share some some upcoming secrets or kind of trailers about? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, Ghost of the White Deer premiered with the Dallas Symphony. That was a concerto for bassoon and orchestra. And I'll tell you, lucky. It premiered uh, Valentine's Day weekend just before the pandemic. Wow. I was really, really fortunate that we got that in four performances. It was great. So that premiered, and I'm really fortunate. And now that is being played with Indianapolis, and the Oklahoma City's Philharmonic is also playing that here uh, this next spring. So that was that was cool that that got off and running. That was great. And then the two concertos are are very much in planning stages right now. The Hatakiloha, that's the one for Irina. That's the violin concerto, and the Forest Dwellers for the trombone concerto is uh, for a Chickasaw trombonist actually. And um, so those are all being developed. And now Shell Shaker. I'm composing right now. I'm in that commission as we speak, and that's premiering um, in Massachusetts on March 4th. And that's a full-length opera in two acts. And Shellshaker is very much derived from Loak Chopala. There's a chapter in there called Shellshaker. And so this is a more expanded version into a full opera. Um, and it's one of our very important legendary stories about how we acquired turtle shell rattles as part of our cultural percussion instruments. They're very critical to our sound. I mean, they're they're Rosetta Stone to our culture. And so um, there's a beautiful story of the origin of those that would, it's just a perfect opera. I'm just so thrilled I get to do this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect hero story. It's got the romanticism of the un, unlikely hero that finds himself has to literally has to go to the forest to discover their strengths and weaknesses and, and, and transform, come back and transform their people. And so the main character is Loxi, this young Chickasaw girl, and she completely transforms our culture. And it's just a beautiful hero's tale. And it's uh, so I, I, I'm approaching it very romantically um, on this. And I I'm, and that's very much how I am. I'm very dramatic and romantic in my writing. And so here I'm just doing it on the sleeve. So well, Jared, it's been such a great time chatting with you and getting to know you, and I'm looking forward to a lifetime of incorporating your music, and uh, thank you so much for everything that you're bringing to all cultures, musically, compositionally, and as you are as a person. So I really appreciate everything. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this time. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony, and thanks to Jared Impichachaha Tate for sharing his music and insights. Thank you to all the incredible performers and record labels that made this episode possible. Loak Chopala, Fire and Light, was played by the Nashville String Machine, conducted by the composer, with the Chickasaw Nation Children's Chorus and Dance Troupe. Vocal soloists are Stephen Clark, Chelsea Owen, Megan Vera Starling, 
and narrators are Lynn Maroney, Wes Studi, and Richard Ray Whitman. It's available on Azica Records. Tchaikovsky's Second Symphony was played by the Oslo Philharmonic and conducted by Maris Janssens on the Shandos label. Pisachi was performed on Documerica by Ethel String Quartet with Ralph Ferris, Dorothy Larson, Kip Jones, and Corin Lee on the Innova label. Hiloa Akchamali was played by Elizabeth Hill on piano and Anastasia Christofakis on clarinet. Tracing Mississippi was recorded by the San Francisco Symphony and San Francisco Symphony Chorus, conducted by Edwin Outwater, and is available on Azica Records. You can check out Jared's music online at jaredtate.com. That's Jared, J-E-R-O-D, Tate. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to lend your support. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music